0: Uh, tonight, we move on to the fourth of the 15 courses that the ACI program is all about. Uh, we finished so far the three principal paths, the principal teachings of Buddhism. That was the first two classes, and that's the first ACI course, Basic Lamrim. Then we finished uh, Basic Perfection of Wisdom, which is mostly Refuge and Nirvana, and then You graduated last week from meditation course, which was number three, based on Kamala Shila, uh, in about 800 A.D. So, this time you're moving on to class number four. Class number four uh, was called the the proof of future lives. And by the way, once you prove future lives, you prove past lives, okay? It was just too long to make a name out of it. Uh, And this is an interesting how this course came about is interesting. In the monastery, uh, you study logic every winter for two to three months, and if you're good at it, then you get selected on your monastery's team and you get sent to the like the Olympics or the it 's called Jahanggungj and it 's a inter monastic debates which rotate every year between the three great monasteries of Sarajay bung and Gundan um, and. You study the four chapters of a book by Dharmakirti, who's about 700 A.D., something like that, and you study uh, logic. The first of the four chapters concerns uh, logic and formal logic. And Tibetan logic, Buddhist logic, is exactly the same as uh, Aristotelian logic. The logic is the same because the human mind works the same. It doesn't matter what country you live in. You know, if A, then B, if B, then C, then A, then C. It doesn't matter where you live. And all language is based on that same logic. Uh, so it doesn't really matter uh, where you're from. Uh, logic is the same. There's a distinction between Buddhist logic and non-Buddhist logic in the goals of Buddhist logic are totally different. You know, what you're trying to achieve with logic is totally different. And we'll talk about that tonight. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you're really good, you get to go to two winter debates. If you're really good, you go to three. Some people go to four, and very few people ever get to five. But in the fourth one, uh, they, co- they start to move into the second chapter of the uh which is the great logic text of Dharmakirti. Not to be confused with Chandakirti, okay? The first six months that you learn Tibetan or Buddhism, you mix up Chandakirti and Dharmakirti all the time. Chandrakirti is the great Madhyamika, emptiness scholar, uh, different thing. Dharmakirti is the great logician. So we're talking Dharmakirti, okay? Um, in the second chapter, Dharmakirti starts to prove the existence of past and future lives, okay? And it's interesting in, when you debate this in the monastery, and I did, uh, in the winter debates, is that, uh, Tibetans are not very good at it. Why? Because they grew up in a country where they said, you're going to have a future life and you did have a past life. And no one questions it. And uh, they, they were bad at this uh, chapter. They weren't very good at it. And, and Kid of Jay noticed the same thing. This great great uh, student of Jetson Kappa back 500 years ago said, everybody in Tibet believes in a future life and a past life because their mom said so. And their first grade teacher said so. And I haven't found a Tibetan who can explain to me why there was a future life or a past life. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and then he went about trying to prove it. And his proof is very beautiful and it's part of the course. And you can find it in there. Uh, Dharmakirti's proofs are very wonderful. Master Dharmakirti. And, and we went over a lot of those proofs during the course. Uh, there's a sort of a very basic principle of the proof of past and future lives and we'll be talking about that. Okay? There's also a ngunsam tema, a direct perception of past and future lives that you can have during deep meditation and you don't have to debate it. Uh, you can you can do that, okay? I mean, you have two choices of how to establish future lives. And one is just to see them. And two is to debate them. Uh, do it logically. Uh, when you're teaching a course, you do it logically because not everybody's been meditating every day. And you can't take them that way, all right? Uh, so you do it logically, all right? So we'll be doing that in this class and in the next class. Uh, The beginning of this class is to give you a little bit of a background in Buddhist logic. And Buddhist logic and perceptual theory, how do you perceive things, how do you know something, how do you recognize something, are very closely tied together. Those two are a very important foundation for emptiness, for understanding emptiness. If you don't understand how to reason and then you don't understand, for example, how you perceive an object and why you can recognize an object. Like, why do you, why do you look at a chair and look at a car and see different things if they're both rectangles? You see what I mean? What is it in your mind that, that happens that you can recognize a car as a car and things like that? So, these are, uh, questions of Buddhist logic, the, the logicians of Buddhism. The first logician of Buddhism was who? Lord Buddha, okay, (laughs) very famous, okay? Very famous scriptures where uh, Lord Buddha taught logic, okay? And but the point of logic is to get into the question of how you can recognize things. That gets into the question of emptiness. And if you get deep enough into the logic scriptures, it's a very, very powerful tool, and I would say a necessary tool for seeing emptiness directly, okay? So I've heard even Tibetan lamas say, oh, the logic stuff is too hard or the logic stuff is boring or the logic stuff is irrelevant to modern life is totally not the case. Uh Geltov Jay said that the kindest thing that Jetson Kappa ever did for him was to teach him logic. Because by teaching someone logic you teach them perception. And by teaching someone perception you teach them you must start talking about emptiness. And and then you can perceive emptiness directly. And and in experience, in practice, if you want to see emptiness directly You must study the Buddhist ideas on perception. Just before that. Called Chichedat. Okay. The idea of qualities and characteristics. Okay. And mental images. How do you make an, mental, how do you use a mental image to see something? Okay. So this is the study of logic is very much tied into the study of perception. And we're going to talk about that. All this comes from the second of the four great schools of India called the the Sutra School, South Tarantica. Okay, sorry. South South Atlantica. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. In the monastery, the whole study of logic, when you get to this subject, which is one of the five great subjects, it's called Tema. Say Tema? Tema. Tema in Sanskrit is Pramana. Uh, and Pramana just means a, a valid perception of something, a normal perception of something. Okay, I'll give you an, an example of a Tema, and then I'll give you an example of a non Tema. Okay? By the way, How many semas do you have during the day? How many correct perceptions or valid perceptions of things do you have during the day? Depends on what school you're in. Okay. Don't don't forget whose hat we have on. We're sutra school. Okay. Sutra school. I mean, valid. If you say valid perceptions, not accurate, but valid. Uh, You have millions and millions of those perceptions every day, all day long. Okay. You're having thousands of them while we said the last few sentences, okay? You had, these are all correct perceptions. People have translated pramana as valid cognizer and other weird words like that. I mean, I used to go home and worried if I'd ever had a valid cognizer or not, you know? Uh, you have valid perceptions all day long. You have correct perceptions all day long. You're having them all the time, okay? And I'll give you an example of a non-valid perception, and then you'll know the difference, okay? Uh, if you're totally jealous of someone, and then out of complete, under the influence of that emotion, you, you think they're trying to do something to you that they had no intention to do at all, that's a non-tema. If you're driving down the road in Howell, New Jersey, Fifth Street, you know, and it's the fall, and there's all these leaves, and there's a windstorm comes up, and, and the leaves are going across the road at dusk, and it looks like a squirrel because there's lots of squirrels down there, and you slam on the brakes, that's a non-Tema, okay? That's a non direct If you're on LSD, alcohol, something like that, you see a pink elephant or something, that's a non-Tema, okay? Very common example in scriptures is, you're rowing a boat at a certain angle along a line of trees, and it looks like the trees are moving and not the boat. Or you're in a subway car, and, and the other one's moving this way, and you're not moving yet, but it looks like you're moving. Those are all examples of non semas. Okay? So non semas are relatively rare. You have a non sema about once every thousand semas or something like that. And, and you have a sema every. You have a few semas every second. You know I mean? Many actually. So that's the thing. I mean, I used to read in these bad translations these weird words, and I was thinking, boy, I wonder. I wonder if I ever get to where I could have a valid cognizer, you know? And, uh, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay, you have valid perceptions constantly. You are living in valid perceptions, according to this school. And, and only those rare examples of where you're very angry and you, you have a total mistake on something, or, or something like that. You're, you're drunk and you see something, or something like that. That's a non-Simma. Okay? Sima has a lot of other meanings which we'll explore tonight. But so somebody says, What are you studying? You're gonna say tema. What does it mean? Valid perception. How do you have a correct perception? What does it mean to have a correct perception? Okay. And correct perceptions are tied up with mental images. And he who understands mental images can see emptiness directly. So it's important to study tema. Okay? Here's one of the examples of the use of the word semma. <laughs> Say Teme, teme. teme. Mikpa Yapeh Tini Teme Mikpa Yape Tini. 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 Tini Okay. Uh, teme means by a valid perception. Okay. By a valid perception. Mikpah means that which is perceived by a valid perception mikpah here is a verb okay, that which is perceived is the tseni tseni means definition Teni means definition definition of what? yopah yopah means to exist I perceive, therefore, it is, okay? The definition of existence in Buddhism is anything which is perceived with a valid perception. If you can see it with a valid perception, then it exists, okay? There's a little bit of a trick between correct and valid, okay? And I'll give you an example. Uh, in my glory days in the diamond business, uh, I had to try to predict the market sometimes, you know. So I would have the option, without asking the boss, to buy uh, maybe half a million dollars of extra diamonds above the orders on the idea that in in a month they might go up in value. Because in my idea, it was a good Judging the market conditions, this was going to happen, you know. Knowing that the electricity was going to go out in Gujarat State in India next month a lot, then these diamonds would increase in value, you know, and uh, stuff like that, you know. So. Uh, then sometimes, based on all my information, which was extensive, you know, I'd have spies in Poland doing stuff about the Russian production, and and I had people in uh, Gujarat State calling me every day, and people in Belgium calling in reports, and people in the jungles in Brazil calling me. And, and then we figure, these diamonds are going to go up next month, so I would buy an extra, you know, so many hundred thousand dollars worth. And then the market would collapse. And then... Uh, <laughs> there'd be an inventory the next 15th of the month and I'd go to the boss and say, you know, guess what, we lost a lot of money. He'd say, that's impossible, we don't have that much stock. I'd say, guess what, I, I <laughs> you know, I cornered the market and then the market fell through. And then he'd, he'd get very angry, you know. Uh, and then he'd say, uh, that was a wrong decision, you know. And I'd say, no, no, it was a right decision. Because based on what I knew at the time, it was the best decision. So it was valid, although it wasn't correct. You see? You see what I mean? So valid means, (laughs) valid means based on what you know, this is the wisest course of action. I mean, logically, the boss can't deny that. I should have done it. I should have made that decision. It was valid. Now, was it correct? No. Okay? So that's the difference between valid and correct. Okay? What's that got to do with perception? You can say valid when given all the information at hand for your screwed up state of mind, this seems to be the way things are. That's valid. Is it correct? No. Okay? I mean, according to the high school of Matamika, you never are correct in your perceptions until you see emptiness directly. Okay? So that's a distinction you have to live with. You have to think about it. Okay? Generally speaking, valid means correct. And you can leave it like that, but if you're wondering why I keep saying ballad, it's from my old diamond days, okay. Mm. What's the... I said that the distinction... I said, first of all, that Buddhist logic, like in the first chapter of the Prahnavartaka, which is the great book by Dharmakirti, okay, which is a defense of Dignaga's book, Master Dignaga's book on logic. Uh, is, is presenting the same kind of logic that you studied in high school. You know, uh, there's a major premise, a minor premise, there's a conclusion, blah, blah, blah. It's all the same. The words are slightly different, the processes are slightly different, but the whole formal logic is the same. And then I said, but there's a big difference between the goals of Buddhist logic and non-Buddhist logic. The goal of Buddhist logic is to get you enlightened. The goal of Buddhist logic is to help you to see things which you cannot see with your direct senses. Okay. Uh, every human mind in our realm and there are many other realms but every human mind in our realm has very very subtle invisible uh, defects or blocks in your mind you can picture them like little uh, marbles in your brain that are transparent and you can't see them but you have plenty of them okay? there are small very subtle mostly invisible uh, blinders that you have in your mind if your mind was free of those you would see some extraordinary things you know all around you at this moment you would see things that you never imagined uh, existed you could see past and future time you could see all kinds of creatures living in this room that, that you can't see right now you know you would become aware of of, of enlightened beings uh, hovering around you all the time. I mean, there are all these things going on around you all the time that you can't see uh, due to certain uh, very subtle blockages in your own mind. And you're born with them. You see what I mean? And, and the practice of meditation and studying Buddhism and doing long retreats and things like that tends to break them down. First, it makes them more and more... Uh, less and less powerful so that you get glimpses of things and then, it, then you lose it, you see what I mean you pass in and out of these glimpses of higher things and then as you study more, as you meditate more as you do more retreats, you break down those obstacles and you start to see things that you never dreamed of, okay, and that's the idea of Buddhism uh, to break down those subtle, they're called dipas okay, those subtle obstacles to break them down the first tool we always use is study and based on study we logically work through those blinders okay so it's almost like a horse with these things on there you know, and the horse says no, no, there's no such thing as the side of the road I can't see it and you sit down with the horse and say no, no, you know, you got these black things on your eyes and, and there's trees on the side of the road that you can't see and they say, no, no, I've never seen them I don't believe you, you know and you say, no, no, really, you got these things you don't know And then you start to reason with them. You see what I mean? And and then after a while, they say, okay, okay, I I believe that it's possible that there could be trees there. Or yeah, I I believe you, there probably are trees there. In a sense, then, they are seeing through the blinders. You see what I mean? We say that logic helps you see through the obstacles to those higher objects, okay? For example, if, if I had enough time, I could prove to you the probable existence in this room of some tantric deities. And then you'd have to say, yeah, intellectually, I think you could be right. And then in a sense, you would be seeing through the obstacles. You'd be, you'd be penetrating those obstacles. Later on, after you remove them completely, you'd see them sitting next to you and say, oh, they're sitting next to me. You know. But we always begin with intellect. We always begin with reasoning. We always begin with uh, piercing through the obstacles with your mind and with your own rational sense that, okay, given all this, given A, B and C, I understand that D must be true, even though I can't see it directly yet. Okay, so that's the idea of Buddhist logic. The process is always like that. It's not like some sartori thing where you don't see them one minute and you do see them the next minute. There's no such thing. You go through a learning process and then you slowly break down the obstacles and the, the first time you see the deities in this room will be logically. And then after you've done that a lot, you'll start to see them directly. You see what I mean? But the first goal is always, the first method is always ration, rational, rational sense, logic, reasoning. Okay? And Buddhism is based on that. And you can say all the uh, what's the sound of one hand clappings that you want, you know? But the Buddha based his whole. Teachings on logic and, and on reasoning, you know. And the more you study Buddhism, the more you study the great books of Buddhism, you know. And tonight we're wrapping up the CD-ROM. I think at four a.m. Right, Genevieve? And uh, <laughs> if we're lucky, you know, hundred and fifty thousand pages of the original books. There's not one that doesn't say you have to do it rationally first. You know, you have to understand things clearly, logically. First, then you have other breakthroughs that follow after that, that may not be so rational or logical. But you must reach those through a process of of clear reasoning, okay, and learning. All right. Um, so here's the goal of the very first goal of Buddhist logic. It's very interesting. This is a direct quotation from Lord Buddha. The printer didn't print out the second half of it. But I'll fill it in, okay? Forget all this stuff. And it's kind of long, but to me, it's one of the most beautiful statements in Buddhism and in the monastery when you step into the debate ground for the first time you better have this on your lips because they will ask you okay it's kind of long Ok, first thing you ever learn in Buddhist logic, very, very, very first thing. And just repeat it. I'm going to give you the debate ground version, ok? Say, kansaki. I'm sorry, I blew that, Na, Dan, Nandawe, kansaki, Kasaki Tsungi, Khansaki, Khansaki Tsur, Tsur, Michate, Nyamagetare. Nga ngandawe means a person like me a, me or a person like me Nga okay? da means me a, or a, a, a person like me ka means, like me. means we can judge other people me meaning the Buddha or a person like me meaning a person who can read other people's minds easily, clearly ki. We can judge other people. The key means but Okay? You know it's gonna come, right? Key. Kazaki Kazaki never Michate Okay? But normal people shouldn't try to judge other normal people. Because you will fail. Okay. And sometimes the fail is translated as you will fall to the lower realms. Okay? and you know you always go into the debate ground and the first thing they say in the winter debates you know hey what's the purpose of winter uh, you know what's the purpose of Buddhist logic you know and you say uh, you're not supposed to judge other people they say give me the quotation they say okay good you know and then they go on to the next subject you know and then I kept asking around I said where's this from I said it's Lord Buddha you know I said but where what's he talking about you know where did it come from they said I don't know we never asked that you know and uh So I asked the computer, you know, I looked in the computer, and it took me a while. uh, And I finally found it. It's in uh, a book by uh, Lord Atisha uh, called Dokundu, which means uh, a compendium of stories from the sutras, okay? And he excerpts a story from a sutra, and it's a beautiful story. And I'll just tell you very briefly, okay? There's a, one monk who is staying in a monastery out in the countryside, and he studies really well, and he gets bodhicitta, and he starts to think that it would be very useful to go into town and teach the lay people a little bit about Buddhism. Out of compassion, he decides that it would be good to visit the town and teach people about Buddhism. And so he starts to go to town. And then this other monk is jealous of him, and uh, he starts to spread a rumor that he's going to town to mess around and to do bad things and things like that. And, and he starts this rumor in the monastery and it gets so bad that the first monk finally has to leave and go to a different monastery, found, you know, start a whole different place and move to a different place. And, and, and that's that this whole thing comes up like that. In actuality, he's going to the town and out of compassion, he's teaching the lay people uh, about Buddhism. And it's not true that he's messing around at all. Uh, but but And also out of a desire not to have any bad things happen at the monastery, he, he voluntarily leaves and goes to a different place and starts his own thing there. Uh, then the Buddha says the monk who was jealous and accused him of all these things that he didn't do ended up living, you know, 500 lives as a dog, and then 500 lives he... Uh, lost his robes like he became a monk and then disrobed and terrible things like that and and that was all this karmic result of of being jealous and of saying untrue things about this other monk or judging the other monk uh, without knowing what he was really doing and then Lord Buddha says and you know who that was? <laughs> you know, he said that was me. I was the jealous monk. You see, this is most of the, the Vinaya stories are like that. At the end the punchline is always I was the jealous monk. I went through five hundred births as a dog. I went through five hundred births losing my robes, you know. And I'm telling you out of compassion, don't do it, okay? Not you know, if you're like me, if you're omniscient or you can judge other people, but Kazaki never get But other people shouldn't try it. You'll you'll mess up. You'll be a dog for a life. Something like that, okay? So This is actually instruction from Lord Buddha saying, don't judge other people, okay? Unless you can clearly read their mind. Don't judge other people. Can you judge their actions? You see what I mean? I mean, are you supposed to stand around while somebody mugs another person and say, you know, I can't judge you, so just go ahead, you know? Uh, No, you can't do that. Uh, if you see a monk who seems to be doing something bad, should you speak up and say something? Yes, you should. You have to. Okay? But do you judge the person indubitably? Are you sure that that's what's going on? You have to say, no, I'm not sure. Uh, so you have to stand up against the action. And you have to stand up against something wrong. But not to judge the person. Not to be sure that you know why they're doing it. Okay? And, and there are many different levels of many different people's actions. And they are inscrutable to us. I mean, you can't be sure what a person around you is doing and why they're doing it. Based on your best knowledge, based on your own level, you have to resist evil. If they seem to be doing something wrong, you have to actively resist it. But in the back of your mind, you have to leave some room there that says, this person could be doing something important. And and I'll keep my eyes out, you know, if I see any evidence that this might be something important or holy or, or something good for people, then I, you know, I'll I'll keep my eyes out. In the meantime, given what I know, to the best of my knowledge, this is something wrong and I have to resist what they're doing, you know what I mean? And that's not contradictory, but, but mentally reserve some judgment, you see what I mean? Then you're not in, you don't get in trouble. And that's the purpose of Buddhist logic, is to know the limits of your direct perceptions okay is to know the limits of your direct perceptions and, and normally we, we judge I personally have done long retreats where when I got out and I was in this really good state of mind for about three days uh, very aware that I judge constantly all day long all day long judging other people deciding that they must be this or that or this you know uh, not talking about what they do, but I'm talking about judging the person. You know what I mean? And and I I would say that we probably do it all day long. And you have to be careful. It, it is the source of much bad karma. Okay. There's two kinds of sama There's two kinds of correct perceptions, valid perceptions, and you should know the difference. Okay. Saying Munsum Tema. Munsum Tema. This is the first of two basic types of Tema, okay? There are more types, but the basic types are two. Uh, Munsum Tema means direct perception, okay? For example, uh, awareness of colors and shapes that I'm holding up here, okay? Awareness of the sound that I'm speaking. You don't have to use logic to perceive those things. To you, they are what we call obvious reality. They're reality on an obvious level. We give that reality a name. It's called Lungur. And that's right here. lungir, lungir" means the obvious level of reality, the obvious levels of reality, okay? You don't have to be Einstein to see blue, okay? You don't have to use logic to see blue, okay? You don't have to use logic to hear what I'm saying. You don't have to use logic to hear your own thoughts. These are all lungir to you, okay? These are all what we call obvious reality, an obvious level of reality. And those can be perceived with your direct sentence or your direct mental sense, okay? Which are called Nunes and Direct valid perceptions, okay? Now what about stuff which is a little harder, okay? Like what? There are two classic examples in scripture. Emptiness, which is called pretty hard to see, and then the subtle workings of karma, which are called very hard to see, okay? So they are even more difficult to see than emptiness, okay? You know, why? Why are there certain scratches on the plastic here on the, that I can see here, you know? What's responsible for the fuzz on the floor in each one of the fuzzes on the floor? You know, why does your eyebrow go like that? And what's responsible for each angle of each hair on your eyebrow, I mean, you got to be a Buddha, basically, to see those things, okay? To know what karma you did that's responsible for the fuzz, the configuration of the fuzz on the floor tonight, okay? That takes a Buddha, okay? Uh, emptiness as well, for most people, is hidden. It's hard to see. And you need different faculties to perceive it. That's called Jepaksema. Jepat Jepat Sema Jepat Jepa. 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 Jepa means valid perceptions, correct perceptions Jepat Jepa means uh, deductive okay things that you figure out with your logic with logic how many times a day do you use logic? here what's this? this is a yeah, cylinder, okay this is a pen okay it's a pen okay now now listen carefully okay uh, do I have a pen in my hand <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah you see you can't perceive it directly and you just use Jepak okay to perceive something which is just moved to a deeper level of reality it's hidden now to you whether I have a pen in my hand is to you now a hidden object and you have had to move to a different level of semma to figure out if I have a pen in my hand. Okay? You moved from munsam to jepak tsema. You know, when I was holding the pen up in front of you, you were utilizing what we call direct perception. And then after I put the pen behind my head and you heard a bang on the floor, you were using, you moved up to jepak tsema, a deductive perception, to perceive that my hand is empty right now, but you can't see that directly. Is it as valid as the direct perception? Can you see as clearly that I don't have anything in my hand as you did that I do have something in my hand before? I mean, does it have the same validity to you? Is it as correct as the first perception? I'd say yes. Okay? I'd say yes. I mean, there's a little bit more room for doubt. You know, maybe I'm very good with my feet or something and I didn't drop the thing, there is a little room for doubt, you can say that, but generally speaking, the correctness of this second mode of perception, which means deduction, is just as, just as strong, if the logic is foolproof, if the logic is waterproof, what do they call it? Airtight, okay? then that perception is as correct and as valid as seeing it with your own eyes. So, seeing is believing is false. Okay? Seeing or deducing is believing. Okay? Like that. By the way, technically, if you're a really good jepaksemian, you know, if you're a really good person about deduction, you'd have to say, the author quite likely that you don't have a pen in your hand, because I heard a bang. Okay. I mean if you're gonna be perfect airtight, you'd have to say something like that. Unless you're really good with tapping your feet in a clever way or something, or you had a tape you know, Seamus had a tape recorder set up back there with a, a bang sound on it, then I can say that you I can say with certainty that if that's not the case, then you don't have a pen in your hand. And and Buddhism says whether you see something with your direct perception or valid perception or whether you see something with your deductive valid perception, the results are just as valid, just as correct, and get used to it. Okay? Why? Because, for example, when you see emptiness, you're going to have to start with deductive perception of emptiness because you can't see it directly until you have seen it logically. Okay? There has to be a process like that. So you have to get used to believing and understanding that all day long, you use your deduction as a perfectly valid substitute for direct perception. It's just as correct. It's just as accurate. Okay? Did you have a question? And I see you were right. <laughs> uh, Jay says, well, then it wouldn't matter if you saw emptiness directly or if you saw it deductively, right? Uh all I can say is that there's a certain power to seeing it directly, okay? When you see emptiness directly, certain events happen to you on that same day called the four Arya truths. Uh, you see your future lives directly. You see the Dharmakaya. You know that you have seen the Dharmakaya directly. Uh, you know the day of your enlightenment. I mean, those things you see... Directly, and it only happens to people who have seen emptiness directly. So there's a certain power, you know, to seeing it directly. It's just as valid that, you know, I mean, it's just as true that you know emptiness exists, but the effect on your mind stream is not the same. Okay? Alright. Like, well, that's a long story. Okay. Kokir is level number two of reality. Kokir means hidden themes, okay? This is Lungyur. This is Kokyur, okay? Kokyur means a, a sort of a hidden level of reality. The classical example of a Kokyur of a object, an object which is number two level reality hard to see, is emptiness itself, okay? Emptiness itself is called Kokyur. Now I'll ask you a question. This is a very beautiful debate I had at Ganden during one of the winter debates. It was beautiful. It was really one of the most beautiful times of my life. Uh, and we debated it like this. I mean, it was a, it was a two-hour debate, but uh, is this blue Lungyur or Kokyur? Is it, is it the obvious level of reality or is it the hidden level of reality that you have to perceive with logic? It's Lungyur. Okay. But what about to a blind man? You see, the same object becomes kokyur, okay? So this is a very profound thing. Every object in the world can be ngunggir or kokyur, depending on who's looking, okay? How many kokyur's are there to an enlightened being? None. 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 Okay? The subtle workings of karma. Why the fuzz on the floor has the particular uh, setup it has tonight. You know, the emptiness of every object in this room and the blue are equally ngungyur to an enlightened being. Okay? They're equally obvious to an enlightened being. They don't need any more logic at all to see anything. Okay? To a person who's blind, all the colors in this room have suddenly become gokyur. They are a deeper level of reality, more hard to see. They can only see that level of reality based on logic. Someone says to me, to them, do you ever walk down the street and you have trouble crossing sometimes and you don't have trouble crossing at other times they say, yeah, yeah, I've noticed that. You know, and then you say, "Uh, are you aware that the cars stop in New York at certain places and then they go after a while and they say, yeah, 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 I understand that. And you say, well, the reason is that there's this electrical thing up above and, and it changes from this thing called red color to this thing called green color. And then they go, you know, and that's why they know how to go. And, and they say, okay, that's logical I believe in red and green okay, I perceive red and green okay, or that there's such a thing as a red and a green, you see what I mean but for them it has to be logical they have to say, oh, that now it makes sense why my seeing-eyed dog always pulls up short and then lets me go after 30 seconds you know, and now it makes sense you see, then they perceived in a way the red and the green, okay that's kokyō shinto kokyō Oh, sorry. Yikes. Say, Shindu Kokyo. Shindu Kokkyo. Shindu means really. When Tibetans get mad, you hear a lot of, Shindu Nine karma. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a really bad guy. <laughs> okay. Shindu Nine. Okay. okay, Shindu means really Kokkyo. And, and this is like a deeper, deeper level of reality, like the subtle workings of karma. Okay, very subtle workings of karma. Difficult even to see with normal deduction. Probably you'll have to rely on some kind of deduction mixed in with some kind of statement by a person who cannot lie. Okay? And this is an interesting thing in Buddhism. There's an uh, there's a exercise in Buddhist logic where you try to establish that Lord Buddha is a person who cannot lie okay and and you go through that exercise first logically and then you take the other statements that he's made as probably being true okay but the exercise of proving that the buddha is a person who cannot lie or who is unlikely to lie uh is the basis for Shintu Kokyo means things that you probably couldn't work out even deductively for a long time so you you base your actions on what Lord Buddha said. Having established him logically as a person who cannot lie. Okay. And, and in the scriptures, they'll say, what's the biggest indication that the Buddha is a person who cannot lie? What's the, what's the biggest indication that the, pers- that the Buddha might be someone who always tells the truth? And, and the answer is very interesting. And it, people ask me, why did you become a Buddhist? You know, I say my parents died and my brother died all in one year, you know. And then I came across this book, a very badly translated sutra, that I didn't know was badly translated in college from 18-something. But Lord Buddha was saying over and over again, everything is suffering. Everything is impermanent, you know. And and then I, I said, this is for me, you know. I don't know who this guy is. I never heard of this thing. I don't want to read the rest of this book particularly, it's very boring, but this one statement, you know, everything is suffering, everything is subject to change, and therefore everything dies, you know, this is absolutely true, you know, especially when three people in your family have just died and you're 20 years old and you're like, this guy is brilliant, you know, this guy's got something. I have never heard another person in my whole life say something so true, you know everyone avoids it nobody in my family wanted to talk about death now they're all dead you know what I mean and and here's this guy comes along and says everything's gonna die wake up do something about it you know and and the fact that out of the whole world you know out of the whole magazines and newspapers and TV shows and radio shows and all the people I know in the world not one of them ever came to me and said you're gonna die just like everybody else you better do something about it, you know? Try this, try this, do this, you know? You got you got more time after you die than before you die, so don't waste the time on what's gonna happen before you die. Get ready for what happens after you die, you know? and Or something like that. I mean, nobody says that in the New York Times, you know? Nobody says that. The Time Magazine never ran a cover story that said, get ready, you know? Uh, everything dies. You're going to lose everything. Everything described by our advertisers, you will have to lose, even if you can get it. You know what I mean? Nobody ever... I don't think the advertisers would let them write that, you know? Uh, Every attractive object for sale in our magazine is worthless because you have to lose it. You know what I mean? And just open your eyes and see that that's happened to all the millions and millions of people who ever lived before you. And you think you're going to be different? You know what I mean? Uh no one ever said that except one person Lord Buddha open up a sutra you know I don't know what the first Buddhist book you saw but you open it up and it says everything is suffering everything dies you have to lose everything do something about it you know what I mean and the basis in Buddhism for accepting the Buddha as being a person who might be telling the truth all the time is that he told the truth about that and nobody else does you see what I mean so, you already give him more credit than you give everybody else. And that's the basis of Temekebu. Temekebu means a person of pramana, okay? A pramana being, meaning a person who is valid, meaning correct, you know? How do, we dis- how do we establish that the stuff that Lord Buddha said about hell realms and hungry ghosts and all that other stuff that you can't see might be correct? Well, because he's the only person that I've ever met in my life that even attempted to describe the suffering that I'm experiencing. The only person I ever heard of who admitted it outright, you know. His Holiness talks about suffering and all the interviewers say, that's so depressing, you know, that's so, uh, what do you call it? There's a word, pessimistic, you know, and, and he says, but it's true, and when you and when you admit it, you feel a lot better, you know? and uh, and it's so true, you see. And and no one's talking about that. No, nobody wants to say anything about it, you see. And then you get one person comes along and says, "This is the way things are." Then you can say, "Ah, this might be a person who can't tell a lie, because they describe my condition so perfectly, and everyone else is afraid to talk about it." Okay. That's the basis of what we call a personal pramana. All of this comes from a very famous quotation which you'll study in your discussion groups called Temur uh, Gyurpa Drolapenshe Pa Temur Deshe Khyobla Opening lines of Dignaga's book on, on logic. Dignaga was a few generations before Dharma Kirti. Some people say he was his direct teacher. And he wrote a book about logic, but the, the book starts out and says Temerjirpa Dola Penshepa means there's one person who's valid. Dola Penshepa means there's one person who cares about other people in an ultimate way. Who's that? Tumba, the teacher, the Buddha. Deshek, the one who has already gone to total bliss. Deshekkyok, the one who can protect you. La okay? I bow down to this person. Okay? And this is a very famous line. That that line sounds like one of those uh, plain old Buddhist uh, exaggeration lines, you know? Oh, the Buddha, the Glorious One, uh, above all others, the, you know, most wonderful in the universe, blah, blah, blah. It's not like that. I mean, there's a statement in there. It says Dola dholapenshepa. Cemagyurpa means a person of pramana, a person who cannot lie. And then it says dholapenshepa, a person who cares more for other people than himself. You know, a person of ultimate compassion. And then the non Buddhist came up to Dignai and said, Prove it, you know. Prove prove this person's got ultimate compassion. How could you have ultimate compassion? How could you care more for other people than for yourself? How could you spend the rest of your life, every single moment, working for the benefit of the people around you, even at your own expense and even as they resist you or attack you, you know, how who would do that? Who's crazy enough to do that? You know, and, and, and Dignaga says, Lord Buddha is. And he said, people say, well, how do you get to be that compassionate? I mean, you don't run into people like that every day. You know, you meet nice people, but you don't meet people who give up everything in their lives to help other people. You know what I mean? And you say, yeah, it's possible. You can do it. People can do it. You can get this thing called bodhicitta and you can learn to be like that. And they say, right, right. How long does it take to learn to be that way. And they say, that's about a million lifetimes. You know, I mean, that's the answer, okay? Oh, a couple thousand years, maybe, you know, of trying, of practicing, you know, because you you can't do it right away. It's so unnatural. It's so inhuman to care more for other people than to do for yourself And, and to give up everything in your life to help other people. You know, it's so weird that it would take a long time to get that way. And so, Dignaga just naturally says, "Oh, it takes lifetimes, you know." And then uh, these guys come along called the Chavakas. Okay, these are certain kind of uh, Hindu group in ancient India, and they say, "Ha, yeah, 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 right, yeah, many lifetimes, right, 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 you know." There, there's no such thing as many lifetimes, you know. And Dignaga says, "Whoa, wait a minute." You're the first people I've met who ever said that, right? Because this is ancient India. Almost everybody's a Hindu. Almost everybody believes in future lives and past lives. But here's one Hindu school that says, no, there is no future lives. Uh, what's that Budweiser thing? It's like, one life to live, you know? Do it. Do it now. Drink as much as you can. And, uh, uh, just one life to live, you know? It's on their advertisements all the time. One life to live, you know? And... Uh, and the Chavakas come up to Dignaga and say, come on, one life to live. And Dignaga says, what makes you say that? You know, everybody knows there's a future life. Mrs. Melvin taught it in the first grade. You know, my mom and dad said so. And, and then the Chavakas say, come on, you can see there's no future life because the mind stops when the body stops. And Dignaga says, what makes you think that? And he said, come on, go talk to a corpse, you know, Go 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 try to commune with a corpse, you know. Uh the, when the body stops, they stop talking. Stop talking, so they stop thinking. The mind is dead. You know? The guy's not moving anymore. Why? There's no mind to make him move. Okay? There's no mind, there's no driver anymore in the skull going, Turn left, turn right, say something now, you know. Uh the guy is not moving at all. You can stand there all day and try to talk to him, he won't say anything. Therefore, the mind must be dead. Okay? And since you say future life is really mind going into a future life, there's no such thing as a future life. okay. And that's how the battle is... Uh, what do you call it? There's a nice word in English. The battle is joined. Yeah, that's how the fight starts. That's why we get to future lives, which we'll do next class. okay. The reason we get to future lives is Master Dignaga is praising Lord Buddha ultimately compassionate and they say well how long does that take he says lifetimes they say ha ha lifetimes you only have one lifetime how do you know that the mind stops how do you know the mind stops hey listen try and talk to the corpse it don't move anymore the mind must be stopped okay that's all who believes this kind of stuff we do <laughs> <All right. laughs> like when I was in the monastery they always picked me to be the charmaka. You know? Why? Because you're American. And you guys think that when the body stops, the mind stops. You always say that. And I was a perfect Charvaka. I was a really good one. It was hard to beat me. Because I used all the arguments that my society taught me for 25, 30 years about why there is no future life. You know? And it was very compelling. It was a really nice debate. It was a hard debate because they weren't used to having anyone who really believed it. You know, and no, it was good. It was really good, you know. So I didn't just roll over and say, okay, yeah, you beat me, you know. Okay. Um, And that's how you go from logic to the study of future life, okay. I'm going to let you do the rest with your leaders. I have one more comment about, I think it's the next to last question in the homework. Temagirpa Dola Penchipa. Temagirpa, I mean, there's an implication here that it's also possible to become an omniscient being. Okay? Like, when you go to most Buddhist lectures, they're not like saying, hey, if you meditate really well, you could become Mr. Know-it-all. You know, you could become omniscient. Okay, when we distinguish between omniscient and omnipotent, okay, uh, the Christians believe that God is omniscient and omnipotent. Okay, omniscient means knows everything in the universe. The Bible says, you know, every time a sparrow falls, God is aware and thinks about it. You know what I mean? Like God knows all things, all things that ever were, are, and will be. God knows directly. Okay, He's aware of all those things for all time. That's omniscient. Omnipotent means God can do anything okay God can make cancer stop AIDS stop God can make the sky turn green God can make uh, a woman out of a guy's rib okay stuff like that that's called omnipotent Buddhists believe there's no such thing as an omnipotent being and a Buddhist would say the proof of it is quite depressingly simple why cancer does exist AIDS does exist babies being burned in car accidents do exist there's probably babies being burned right now by American bombs, okay? At the, as we speak, you know. Uh, what did they do to deserve that? Did they disobey God at such a young age, you know? Were they not listening to the Divine Father before they could even think? You know what I mean? Uh, what's the point? To torture them, to burn them. You see what I mean? We say no such thing as a, as a, as a divine being who can stop those things. There's no such thing as an omnipotent being. Is there such a thing as an omniscient being? Yes, okay, Uh, a Buddha. And then they say, you know, it comes up, they ask him Dignaga, well, what do you got to do to be omniscient? You know, he says, do you have to know everything? I mean, does Buddha go around all day long classifying all the genuses of plants and animals, you know? I mean, does a Buddha sit there all day long and say, oh, Locus Maximus, you know, uh, and over here we got a uh, zinc uh, oxide, you know, and, and uh, which is called all the, in, in Tibetan it's called Kamdi nam which means all the various divisions of existence. I mean, is that what it means to be omnipotent? I'm sorry, omniscient, you see? Is it that you can classify everything? I mean, because that's the goal almost, you know, it's almost they're taking a jive at at science. You see, science is almost of the mode that if you could classify everything, you would know everything. If you could name everything, you could know everything. And to be omniscient is to be able to name and perceive and to categorize all things. And omniscient beings are really busy because every single moment of their lives, they must perceive all the chemical structures and all the biological names of every object in the universe. You see I mean? Is that what it is to be omniscient? You see what I mean? And then the logic text says, no. Okay? The guts of omniscience is very beautiful. It's to know what's right and what's wrong. Okay? And that's enough. You see? If you knew what kinds of actions would bring total happiness to all living beings, And if you knew what kinds of actions are hurting all living beings, that's omniscience. That's the guts of omniscience. Do they also see all the chemical names of everything? Yes. Do they, uh, are they into taxonomical or whatever? Yes. But that's not what it means to be omniscient. Omniscient means they understand the way to get out of suffering. They understand if you do these things you'll be ultimately happy forever. If you do these things you will continue to suffer. And because they understand that division, that one division perfectly, they are omniscient. And that's the point of omniscient. Okay? I think that's kind of cool. I really like that. It's it kind of, you know, you can feel it's truth, uh, that that's what you'd want an omniscient being to be worrying about. Okay? Uh, in, in reality. Okay? All right, we'll stop there and uh, take a break and then uh, we'll get into our groups and there's a lot more stuff on the homework to cover. Okay. And next week, we'll, I'm sorry, next class we'll cover future lives and the proofs for future lives, okay? Yeah. 12 years to find the great books of Tibet try to preserve them and then we've taught Tibetan refugees to type them into the computer and then uh, we give them away for free and we've given away about 10,000 discs in about 50 countries. And now they're all on the web. You can take any book that you want, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this is a party to celebrate the new release. It's been five years that it took to make the release. And uh, hundreds of people working, probably about a thousand people working really hard to finish it. And uh, so we really want to blow out and celebrate and uh, a lot of people here have been working on it John Brady's been in charge of it Mercedes uh, Genevieve spent many, many hours at it Robert Chilton spent a quarter of his life on it and uh, <laughs> a lot of other people or uh, a lot of other people uh, many, many, many hours of their lives uh, to save the knowledge that you are getting you see what I mean? and uh, if it's not done now it won't be done if it's not done in this generation it will be lost and a lot of the books that we've input uh, would have been lost already so you know come and just celebrate okay you don't have to have any ticket or anything just come to that address Uh, you have a big responsibility which is to drink and eat a lot and watch the entertainment and stuff like that okay but just come and Celebrate! It's a really good Dharma party. And uh, really would like you to come. And just rejoice. You know, theoretically you get 10% of the virtue if you're happy about it. So it's like the cheapest way you can get virtue that night. <laughs> All right. So you're quite welcome to come. Um, last week we talked about the... Uh, core curriculum of the ACI and we talked about the distinction between uh, Lam Rim Lam Rim pa, and the Senyi pa. okay uh, Lam Rim Pa is an approach based on the Lam Rim teachings Lamrim is an abbreviation of all the steps of the path and uh, that's mainly what has reached this country so far I mean most teachers who've come here Tibetan uh knowing the special circumstances here. There's a language barrier. Uh, Americans are always busy. They don't have time to come to class. If they do come to class, they're going to skip a lot of classes. Uh, They're probably not going to be willing to memorize anything or like that. So, based on all that, you know, these Geshe's who spent their whole life studying Tsenipa, the five great books, start teaching Lam Rim. And that's a good thing and it's very uh, lucky for Americans that the Lam Rim exists and, and many people learned it. But also, it means that Americans haven't been able or had the opportunity to go through the five great books. And, and so, ACI is supposed to be something different. ACI is supposed to be where uh, we don't concentrate so much on Lam Rim Pa, we study more the Senyi Pa, the five great books. That takes more time, it takes more commitment, and fewer people will come. You know, not so many people can spend that much time. Uh, not so many people are attracted to that much work. And, and the idea is that we'd rather have fewer people who are willing to go through that kind of work uh, and, and produce uh, teachers of high quality, you know, who really know their stuff. So that's been the theory behind the structure of the courses. I'd like to talk, not very long, maybe five minutes, about how they're presented, okay? Uh, And I think this is very important. I think uh, there's been this uh, tendency to present the ancient books as too difficult for Americans. You know, like every teacher who comes to America says, we better water this down, or we better make this easier, or uh, we can't give American people, can't read the original books, And and I'd like to say that ACI doesn't accept that. You know, all of the courses that were ever taught here were based on the original scriptures. Like, there haven't been any readings until this year that were written by anybody than some Tibetan or Indian master from the ancient days. You know, you studied the original Abhidharma Kosha. You studied the original Majumika text. You went through the... You're going through the original Pramana text. And I think uh, that should be a principle of ACI, that the uh, texts that are studied as the core are the original texts. you see what I mean? That I don't think Americans are too stupid or, or they're not interested enough or they don't have the patience or the, or the willpower to get through the original books. I don't believe that, I don't think it's true. And I think I would like to see those texts be the core of of what we do. I think the problem is in the presentation of them. You see what I mean? Uh, If you sit down and try to read the Abhidhamma Kosha, it's impossible. You can't. Okay? It's not something that you can read like, uh, His Holiness has has the art of happiness. You know, you can't sit down and read the Abhidhamma Kosha like that. You can't. It requires a commitment of some time and your life. And you have to sit down and be willing to learn it thoroughly and then you need an oral explanation of it. And here's the punchline for tonight, in plain English, okay? In plain English. So I think you have to have that combination, okay? The original, ancient scriptures uh, as they were written and you must have that as the core of your course and as your institute. But I think on, at the same time, you must have an oral tradition an oral explanation of it, which is given in ordinary English, in normal English, without the gibberish, uh, without weird English words, without Sanskrit words that you don't know, uh, without requiring that you learn Tibetan. I think it's good to have the Tibetan if you want to learn it, but in normal English, that the ancient original texts are explained in a way that a normal American person can relate to and then relate it to people's lives. Uh, that's the theory of ACI. That's the theory of the core. Okay? So, you know, when we send out the readings to like people, we always send them tapes because the readings by themselves are hard and they were not meant to be books that you read by yourself. They were meant to be Guides that you used with a teacher and, and with the oral explanation, the oral tradition, and the blessings of the oral lineage. Uh, Ken Rinpoche gets very upset. People say, uh, I heard you're going to start teaching, which he is, by the way, and you should know, I think, on Sundays, very soon. So keep in touch and find out. So people say, I, I can't make it, my brother's getting married, you know, or something like that. I'll send Joe with a tape corner. You know, and Rinpoche gets furious and he says, you don't get the oral blessing from a tape recorder, okay? You have to be there, you know, you have to listen. There's something that happens between uh, a living being and another living being that you can't put on a tape recorder. Uh, and, And so I'd say that, that the theory behind these courses has been threefold, okay? One, you use the original scriptures. They have been either written by or written down from a being who is omniscient uh, you can present them in a modern way but you can't improve on that information it's, it's, it's infallible it has been written by an omniscient being you don't need to uh, correct uh, Lord Buddha's statements or fix them or anything else they're fine he knew you were going to think like that a million years ago uh and if you don't think so, then why study it? You see what I mean? So, so you must have as the core the original statements by Lord Buddha, and you must study them. Secondly, they must be interpreted and presented in your language, in your vernacular. They should be presented in normal English without uh, a lot of weird philosophical terms or foreign languages or things like that. They must be uh, passed on in the language that normal people can relate to. And they can be, and there's no reason to make them unintelligible. That's just a problem of people not knowing the language of the original very well. If a translation sounds weird to you, you can bet it's badly done, because you can bet the original sounds fine. You see what I mean? So, if a translation sounds weird or odd or, or, you know, unintelligible, it's a reflection of the translator, okay? The originals are amazing. The originals are fantastic and beautiful and wonderful, and they sound great in the Tibetan, okay? Uh, so, those are two principles. You have the original text, and you present the information in normal language of the people that you're speaking to. And Lord Buddha does that. That's one of the qualities of Buddha. Sixty qualities of a Buddha's speech. Number one of the sixty is speaks the language of the common man of that place. And that's the first quality of a Buddha's enlightened speech. Okay? Uh, And then the third quality is to continue to recognize the blessing of the oral tradition. You know what I mean? The importance of a living being transmitting some kind of blessing to another living being to the class. So you will never be able to do ACI courses only from the books or the tapes. You know, sooner or later, you must have direct contact with a living teacher. Uh, and, and, and the information can only be spread that way. There's factual information that can be spread through tapes and books but there's an oral tradition, unbroken, back to the time of the Buddha, of some kind of special synergy that takes place between a student and a teacher that cannot be replaced. It, it must be direct contact with a human teacher. And the blessing of the oral tradition must continue unbroken. Okay, And that's where you guys come in, because A, I'm going on retreat, B, even if I wasn't. I can't talk to everybody who wants to know this stuff. And you must start taking the role of the next generation of teachers. It's not uh, something, uh, how do you say, presumptuous? It's something you have to do. It's something you are bound to do. It's something you are obliged to do. You see what I mean? Once you have taken teachings, and once you have become the next link in the oral tradition, it's your responsibility to pass it on, or it will die. You see, I mean, the oral, the books will be around and ACI tapes, you'll be able to order from Annie Palma for the next 50, 60 years. But uh, it's your responsibility to, to take the oral tradition and pass it on to other living beings. Okay? And you can and you should. And that's the way it's always been done. And don't think that you're not smart enough or good enough to do it. Uh, because that's the way it's always worked. Okay? Each generation thought they weren't as good as the last generation. Maybe true, but... We're all you have right now, okay? So you, you have to think like that and don't, don't get like some feeling like you're not good enough or you're not smart enough. Uh, learn it well and then fearlessly pass it on to other people. Uh, it's not only your... Uh, it's not only possible or desirable, it's your responsibility or else it will stop after two and a half thousand years with you. Do you want to do that? You know, do you want to be the first uh, dead-end street in two and a half thousand years, you know? (laughs) Okay? No, you have to not think like that, okay? And uh, the way I see the teachers doing it here is very sweet. The twelve teachers uh, that we have here are doing very, very well. And uh, I hear good dharma going down, okay? All right, we'll stop there and uh, take a break. No, see you next (laughs) week. Okay.